0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. And this week we're coming to you from the Motor City, Detroit, Michigan. The city hosted the latest round of Democratic debates. Twenty candidates, their campaign staff, hundreds of reporters, protesters, and at least one goat descended on the city. Why Detroit? Well, because Michigan.
2: Donald Trump on Monday was named the winner in Michigan the last state to be awarded in the presidential election.
0: Well, Donald Trump's pathway to the White House and into winning Michigan narrowly by 13,000 votes started in Macomb County.
2: Donald Trump was certified the winner in Michigan by more than 10,000 votes. Clearly, Michigan has kind of become ground zero for the campaign in the last five or six days.
0: He carries Michigan. We're in for a very
3: short night, because at that point it will be clear that Donald Trump will be the next president.
2: The Associated Press and NBC News both called the state for the real estate mogul.
3: It, the, the sort of forgotten man and woman he talked about in his, in his victory speech. Reagan Democrats, well, you might call
2: them the Trump Republicans. Trump Republicans.
1: 10,704. That's the number of votes Donald Trump won Michigan by in 2016. It was also the first time since 1988 that a Republican carried the state. And it was the slimmest margin in any state that went to Trump, and it shocked many Democrats, especially those at the national level. But there was at least one Democratic member of Congress who sounded a warning earlier that year. Debbie Dingell, Congresswoman from the 12th District of Michigan. I sat down with Congresswoman Dingell to answer the question we're tackling today. What will it take for Democrats to win the battleground state of Michigan in 2020? Can we go back in time a little bit? Mm-hmm. I remember early in the 2016 cycle, you were telling anybody who would listen which was about nobody. <laughs> well, that Michigan was really in play and Trump could win here. And the response
4: you got was? Everybody thought I was crazy. Doesn't mean I'm not crazy now, but I unfortunately was right. And what made you think that? What was happening? When I am home, I work my district I, and I make, I do it all year round. So I try every weekend and I'm home every weekend to be in a union hall, to go to a farmer's market now, at this point, I go to different coffee groups. Everywhere I go, people were telling me that they were tired of partisan bickering, that Donald Trump cared about him, that they didn't care that Democrats cared about him. What really turned, it, it convinced me, I, I mean, I was hearing that very early on, no, everybody else thought it was crazy. And by the way, even before the primary, I thought Bernie could win. He had been in my district 10 times. Hillary Clinton had never walked into my district. Again, I remember saying to several media, I really think Bernie Sanders could win. And they're like, you're crazy. And he did win. And I think it's, I have good gut. I listen to people. I think more of us just need to listen to people. And so how have those conversations
1: gone as you're talking to people for the last year? And what are we on with the, we're over Three years now. It's yeah, about three, three years, years, essentially,
4: yeah. I, I, I was at Ann Arbor's farmers market last week, and in a period of five minutes, first woman came up to me and said, Democrats are too timid. You need to impeach him. It was very intense. Another woman walked up to me, like right as she was leaving, and swore at me and told me Democrats needed to leave President Trump alone, and he was doing a good job, and he was saving America. And then a third woman walked up and said, you Democrats need to get off impeachment and get back to tabletop issues. And I was standing with two vendors from the farmer's market and said, and there is America. And that's what you're seeing now. There are people that feel very intense. Some of the people that three years ago who I knew were going to go the other way are feeling very strongly. You go downriver, it's an auto Area. There are a lot. There are plants down there. There are suppliers, etc. They're supporting President Trump. Ann Arbor's got a lot of people supporting anybody but President Trump. But people are torn.
1: What happened in 2018, though, was that Democrats did really well up and down the ballot, winning in places, including and for Congress, winning in places that they hadn't won before in these suburban districts. So, did that make you feel like maybe something had switched, or was it just because it was a midterm, and it will be different once the president's on the ticket.
4: I think it will be a different race because it is a presidential race. I think a lot of people, I remember right after the president had been inaugurated, I was in Ann Arbor at the Women's Rally. We had 20,000 people in just Ann Arbor, Michigan. I started that day in Washington, D.C., and ended up there. And a woman came up to me and said, I'm a lawyer. I'm 64 years old. I've never been involved in politics in my life. But I can't believe what's happening in my country and you have to tell me what to do and I I think in many ways this election is going to come down to how women feel Uh, I think a lot of people were tired of the partisan bickering, they didn't think that their vote mattered and they didn't vote in 2016 I think a lot of those same women came out we picked up two seats here in Michigan, we have five women in the House delegation now but presidential election year is different and how they're feeling about the governor how they're feeling about things in washington will drive turnout and turnout's going to be key to 2020
1: and it seems as if the president is banking on the same turnout strategy he had in 2016 which is small town rural america and we could still lose the suburbs still lose the cities but win. can you do that And win in Michigan, or does he need to be able to do more than that? He only won by a little over 10,000 votes.
4: Whoever wins Michigan, I think Michigan's at play. And I would not predict right now who is going to win Michigan. Is who talks to everybody. So at the Detroit debate, and it's great that people are here, and they need to talk about urban issues. But they also need to talk about issues that matter to working men and women. Democrats did a really bad job of that in 2016, Congresswoman, thank you for coming in and talking with me. It's great having you in our city and come back often. Congresswoman
1: Debbie Dingell represents Michigan's 12th district. It wasn't just a listening problem for Democrats in Michigan in 2016. State Democrats here also blamed a critical lack of organizing and party infrastructure. LaVora Barnes was the chief operating officer of the Michigan Democratic Party at the time. The mistake we made was that we sat back and waited for a presidential campaign to come in and set up shop and set something up. In February 2019, Barnes was elected chair of the Michigan Democratic Party. We met up this week in the lobby of the Weston Book Cadillac in downtown Detroit.
5: We said that's never going to happen to us again. And we started organizing in 2017 to get ready for 2018 and 2020. Um, not waiting anymore for anyone else to come in and make it happen.
1: The, um, the other issue in 2016 was that the African-American vote dropped significantly in Michigan from 2012. There are a lot of theories about it. One is that not having Barack Obama on the ticket was a very significant factor. And then the other question was whether Hillary Clinton was motivating enough. What do you say? So I, I challenge the
5: notion that we, the black community, need a black candidate on the ballot to turn out to vote. What we need are candidates who come see us learn about our issues, ask questions about what's important to us, and then speak to those issues. We cannot show up in October and say, please vote for me, having not been there any time previous to that. And that's the difference that we're trying to make this time, is that we're working in those communities now to have conversations about the importance of 2020 and the issues that are important to us. And we're going to continue that work Without a candidate until there is a candidate who hopefully will take up the mantle and start having those conversations. Do
1: you think that's what a lot of national Democrats were thinking is, of course, African-Americans are going to turn out. Look at what Trump's saying. Look at his language. Look at his background. Right. For for a lot
5: of people, I think it really was. How could you not turn out to vote against this guy? But what you need to know about being black in America, the things that Trump was saying is still saying. We hear him all the time. That's not new might have been new to some other folks who were shocked to hear it coming out of a man running for president and continue to hear it coming out of the mouth of a president. But these are the things that get shouted at us in the street all the time. This is life in America for black folks. So you need to ask more of us and give more to us in order to earn our vote, not just
1: expect us to come out and vote against someone. As you're talking to Michigan Democrats, as they're looking at this field of many, 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 many many candidates, If you could sort of synthesize what they're looking for in their candidate as their nominee, what would that be?
5: I wish I could synthesize it, but I I can tell you this. We all want someone who listens to us with, with open ears, open eyes, and open heart, and who then takes what you hear from us and acts on it. We also want someone who has some sort of an urban agenda, some sort of a rural agenda, someone who can speak to the issues that are affecting all of us all over Michigan. And a lot of these issues are the same. They're the kitchen table issues. It's about the economy. It's about health care. It's about infrastructure. It's about clean water, right? So that your family has clean water to drink. Um, but these issues need to be sort of synthesized in a platform that says, this is what I believe in. This is what I will do as your president.
1: Uh, the president also is spending a lot of time yes. in Michigan. Yes. What is your sense for how they see their path in Michigan again, winning in Michigan again? And how worried are you that they have a real path to winning here?
5: So they they no longer have a path to winning here because we're no longer asleep at the wheel. We're going to fight for every vote. We've already started that process and we're going to keep it up. But what they're going to do is try to divide us. The thing that I know that they want to do is to, to divide Democrats and people of color from... The white working class voters that everybody likes to talk about, every pundit in the world does those words roll off their mouths all the time. And what I want us to do, and I think we can and will, is remind those voters that we're all being marginalized by this president. His policies have done nothing to lift any of us up here in Michigan.
1: What was turnout like in Detroit itself? And were you happy with where the level was. I was okay. very
5: pleased with the turnout we were able to accomplish in, in 2018 in Detroit. We had staff on the ground early, staff on the ground that is still on the ground doing the work, a terrific team of volunteers all out there having great conversations with voters, and we're just going to continue that work. I think that um, the, the, the Clinton campaign had a plan. Um, it was a well-crafted plan, and they believed in it, and I get that. I've done that before. I've been that campaign, but uh, it, was, it was hard. It was hard to be there and feel frankly, powerless to do something about it. And it's part of the reason we've built this program that we have now, because I refuse to feel powerless again. So now I have a party structure that allows me to know that I've got folks on the ground who are doing the work I know needs to be done. It's hard for me. I've got to fundraise for it myself to make it happen, but it's important to me that we get it done um, because I don't ever want to feel powerless like that again.
1: LaVora Barnes, thank you so much My for taking pleasure. the time with me. Thanks for having me. LaVora Barnes is the chair of the Michigan Democratic Party. Drive an hour north of Detroit, as we did, and you hit the suburbs. These areas have historically been held by Republicans. Until 2018. That year, Democrats flipped two of these formerly GOP strongholds.
6: So I represent a suburban district in Michigan, in southeastern Michigan.
1: Congresswoman Haley Stevens was one of those Democrats. Her district, Michigan's 11th, was carried by Trump in 2016, and Mitt Romney in 2012. It is home to the country's most
6: robust automotive supply chain. We've got great public schools. they have got communities like Troy and Livonia and Canton, and those comprise about 100,000 people each. And that's my biggest city. And so those cities are places where people live. They send their kids to school there, the great public schools there, and they also work there.
1: I'm Sam Aliman. I go to school at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and I'm 22. We also caught up with the student and local organizer, Sam Aliman, who was canvassing for the Democratic Party, knocking on doors in Rochester, just down the road from the district Congresswoman Stevens represents. Rochester also sits in one of those districts that Democrats flipped in 2018. Democrat Alyssa Slotkin knocked off Republican Congressman Mike Bishop here. It's also a district that Trump carried in 2016.
5: So I grew up right off of Adams Road in Rochester. It's literally two minutes from where all the doors I've been knocking.
1: All this door knocking this early in the campaign is meant to keep voters engaged after Democrats' strong showing here in 2018. And the conversations tell the party a lot about what people care about.
5: But a lot of the conversations, people really do have those, the dinner table issues, I think, is, as they call them. You know, my kid's education, the public school system, uh, taxes.
6: I certainly spent a lot of time talking to people about some of those other bread and butter issues that I think were taken for granted. One, health care. And the cost of health care right
1: behind that, though, education. Focusing on these so-called bread and butter issues, Stephen says, was how she was able to turn a red district just because someone is voting a certain
6: way or's got a certain allegiance doesn't mean you need to discount them in fact if we look back to 2016 i think we lost sight of why people are voting a certain way that that
1: understanding and if we don't understand that you're probably not on the trajectory to winning how did, what did you what did you mean by that when you said we lost sight of what why people were voting I, Thinking about some of the conversations I had with people, um, and, and this isn't the punditry
6: or news articles or anything like that, but this is, you know, like I'd have friends who are saying, Oh my gosh, people who vote for Donald Trump are so outrageous, or they'd just be totally discounting them as people and saying hurtful, hateful things. And you think about it, and you go, Whoa, 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 these are people I know who are voting for Donald Trump, these are family members. So let me take a minute to learn why they're voting that way. Let me take a minute to listen. And it's never that I'm mollifying my standpoints or my issues. I took a really bold stance on gun violence early on in my campaign in 2017. I, I didn't lose voters because I took that stance. I gave them my conviction. And I actually think that's the real litmus here and we can see this within our caucus, is capturing the conviction of our elected officials, understanding what that is that motivates them, so that I can accomplish what I want to do. I want to continue to see us develop new policies that meet the
1: charge of the time. I'm not going to do that through hatred, Amy. We're here in Detroit for the Democratic debates, plural, and um, I want to get your perspective on what you've seen coming from the candidates thus far. There are a number of Democrats that I've been talking to, especially those who are working in districts that are a lot like yours. They're former Republican districts, especially suburban districts. And they're worried that on the debate stage, the candidates are moving, we're moving too far to the left on issues like immigration, like health care that for their districts, those issues are really problematic and could lose those seats.
6: The one litmus I'm really applying to what I call the Kentucky Derby of presidential races going on right now with so many people running is really on this economic issue. I think who can own the economic message? And I believe it is ripe for our taking because not enough has been done by this current administration and certainly for the two years when it was a Republican supermajority to advocate and advance for our middle class. And we saw that missing, as I previously said, uh, with our tax bill. We're seeing that with public education. And I certainly am going to talk about manufacturing till I'm blue in the face. But I also think it's a values conversation. And it's a values conversation about... Our economy and who has access to resources and who can afford higher education and who can go on to that apprenticeship or training program and feel valued for those technical skills and the talent that they bring. But we got to keep peeling back. We got to get into the neighborhoods and see who's having success and who's not accessing that success. I know some of these individuals. They have been left out. Why? variety of reasons. Policies that have disadvantaged them, stigmas, as, as well as changing dynamics of the economy that haven't been championed.
1: But do you worry that Democrats, instead of talking about the economy, have been spending too much time talking about Medicare for all, free college...
6: You know, I think a lot of times when you get into these big races and there's so many people running, you know, you're, you're looking for that attention. You know, you're looking for that differentiator. And, and look, I'm, I'm not a pollster, so I haven't been seeing all the focus groups and what everyone's talking about. But your focus group is your district. Exactly. I've got a great focus group in my district. And, you know, I don't think we need to overthink I, that, that is a trap that we fall into a lot of times in national politics. we got to tap into that inner core message. I don't really know if we need to be in search of the heart and soul of the Democratic Party right now because we know what it is. We know what we want to do for people and who we're going to be advantaging and prioritizing and the government that we want to lead. We know that we cannot take Another four years of Donald Trump, and we have got to win in 2020. Full stop.
1: Congresswoman Haley Stevens, thank you so much for taking the time and speaking with me. Thank you.
3: This was awesome. On Radio Lab. First, we thought we'd made some sort of mistake. Two surprisingly simple scientific discoveries.
4: This is crazy. <laughs> I mean, we were just so surprised.
3: That makes us reconsider our assumptions about progress.
4: We need to learn the language of the doctors of that time. We need to be a little bit less
1: dismissive.
2: Staff retreat from Lab.
1: I learned a bit of humility this way.
2: Listen wherever you get podcasts.
0: 2018
1: was a great year for Democrats in Michigan. We just heard from Congresswoman Haley Stevens, whose district was one of two that flipped from red to blue. The state's top three offices also went to Democrats. Democratic women, to be exact. On Wednesday, after the first night of the debates, I sat down with one of them, Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Whitmer ran in 2018 as a progressive pragmatist. Her campaign slogan was... Fix the damn roads.
7: I asked her for her impressions of the first round of the debates. I was really pleased to see such a robust debate around health care. I was pleased that toward the end of the debate, there was a lot more conversation around, you know, things like infrastructure. And that's really important. Our education system in the United States um, is, is struggling compared to the rest of the world. And I think that's something that is a fundamental that families around their dinner tables, when they put their kids to bed, are stressed about. In communities across Michigan, uh, we're underfunding we're, kids who need wraparound supports aren't getting them. And the skills gap is a it's a homeland security issue, but it's also the economic issue that really tells you if people can take care of themselves and their families. And that's where the anxiety of the American people is. And that's why we got to address it. In your victory in 2018, you said, look, we we
1: ignored Trump and the tweets and all the nonsense coming out of Washington and focused on, obviously, infrastructure. But isn't it going to be a little bit harder, a lot harder, if you were running for president, if you're running against Donald Trump? Is it fair to say you can ignore those things and just focus on the fundamentals? Or do you need to actually address a lot of the things that he's saying and doing, even
7: though some of them come through a tweet? Well, I think because of the nature of the matchup, they're going to have to address some of it. And I believe that it is important to call it out when the president has such destructive tweets that are attacking Americans, that are attacking American city. We need to call it out. But we can't let that suck up all of the energy and air in the room. And that's why I say, yeah, we should take it on, address it, but then get back to the things that really matter to the people of our country, because that's what they vote on. I think this is such a important election and 2018 the lesson I think was that people understand they can't not engage in politics as as ugly and tough as it can be not voting is is make taking a stand and you might not be able to live with the consequences and that's kind of the reaction to 2016 and i believe that's why we had historic turnout in 18 and i won by more votes than any person who'd ever run for governor in michigan had but this is i think our um our challenge to keep people focused on on what the consequences are in this election and what could be if we get the right person in the White House? Well, that's the question too, a lot of
1: Democrats are asking themselves. You won a Democratic primary as the sort of pragmatist against candidates who were advocating for more bold or progressive um, agenda. There are a lot of progressives who say, if you don't energize that those voices, those folks who stayed home in 2016 because they felt like Democrats weren't bold enough It's never going to happen. What do you say to them?
7: So, well, you know, I was um, the stalwart progressive during my time in the legislature, and I know how to get things done. And it's not a choice whether or not you're progressive or you know how to deliver. I think that that's what I really struck the balance between. I had a couple of, of fellow progressives in my primary, and they, you know, tried to position it that way. But the fact of the matter is, All the values and positions in the world don't mean a whole lot if you can't execute. And I think that's what I'm hoping our candidates don't abandon their progressive values, but also focus on how are you going to get it done. The people of our country, the people of my state want um, thoughtful leaders who can actually deliver. And I think that, at the end of the day, is what changes election behavior.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Dr. Abdul El-Sayed ran to the left of Whitmer in the Democratic primary. He was endorsed by Bernie Sanders and by then-candidate Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Like Sanders, he ran on a platform of single-payer health care, tuition-free college for lower-income students, and ridding corporate money from politics. He characterized Whitmer as a status quo politician who was benefiting from her ties to the health insurance industry. In many ways, the race reflected the current tension within the Democratic nomination fight today. Given that he lost the primary, I asked Dr. El-Sayed whether there was enough appetite for big, ambitious policy proposals, even among Democratic primary voters.
2: Well, don't forget, Bernie won his primary in Michigan in 2016, A. B, um, you know, it's very clear that if I was running in the same lane as someone else, we split votes, especially if we're running on the same message. Mm-hmm. C, you know, in some respects, I was asking people to take a lot of bets. When I kicked off my campaign, I was 32 years old. I had never run for office in my life. And I am, you know, unabashedly and unapologetically uh, Arab American and Muslim. And I didn't run away from that. And this was the first time, I believed deeply in the meritocracy as a you know young person of color. But it was the first time that, that my belief in the meritocracy was shaken. Our um, political system right now is so rigged and It was like playing on a playing field where every time you score a goal, there's a point on the other team on the scoreboard. And every time you're fouled, it's a call against you. But it's also the reason why we all have to be invested in this system. It's easy to take your ball and go home. It's easy to say, well, look, this thing is so broken, so we might as well all just give up because that's exactly what the folks who are trying to break it want you to do. And I refuse to do that because it matters too much.
1: You also went and not only endorsed your Democratic opponent, who ended up being the nominee, but you campaigned with her and campaigned for her. Even though you do, as you said, you thought that the system itself was broken. So why do that? Well, look
2: at the alternative.
1: Well, a Um, lot of people do look at the term and say, I don't care, and they move on.
2: I'm not a bitter person by nature. Uh, And I guess the minute I get too bitter (laughs) um, is the minute that I'm, I'm... uh, I, I might as well just walk away. I hope never to be that person. Uh, doesn't mean that I don't have very serious questions about some of the choices that are are being made with the state. But that does mean that I do believe that every day she's making a better set of decisions on a set of values that are closer to my own than would have been with a Governor Bill Schuette. And so uh, to me, it was just a rational decision. Um, but the work still has to continue. And you know, I told her when I endorsed her, Uh, I told her, I will endorse you today, and from now until November, I'll do everything I can to see you elected. And the day after the election, I will be right back to where I was trying to hold you accountable for the people that I serve.
1: And are you engaged in the 2020 Democratic primary? Have you endorsed someone? Do you plan on campaigning for someone or helping someone here?
2: You know, I haven't endorsed. Um, I'm a lot more interested right now in advocating the approach to politics i think we need to take which is bold and principled and focused on real solutions we cannot continue to allow our collective insecurities about the future preclude us from doing the things that we need to do to actually solve the problems that we face uh you know i don't know if i'll make an endorsement but certainly uh certainly after the primary is over i will be all in on making sure that um that we elect uh, whoever the nominee is, and, and hopefully it's a nominee who uh, carries those bold ideas. Right, and so even if it's a candidate who isn't necessarily as bold as you would like, I think the you know the the imminent danger of another four years of Donald Trump implies that um, you know at this point uh, we have a real responsibility. But again, I don't want to I don't want us to fall into thinking that it's just about electing somebody who's not Donald Trump.
1: And do you think that's what Democrats <clears> are doing right now, as voters? They're more focused on beating Donald Trump than they are to doing the riskier stuff, which is to make, as you would argue, more fundamental, structural, r- risky change.
2: My fear is that in trying to do that, we lose the entire project because, because you're not going to beat Donald Trump by telling everybody how bad Donald Trump is. We already tried that. You're not going to beat Donald Trump by being, quote unquote, the most electable person in, in American history, to be honest. If we try and do that again, we will lose. Focus on telling people what you want to do, to empower them in their lives, and you will also be Donald Trump.
1: Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed is a progressive activist. He's the former health commissioner for the city of Detroit. Macomb County sits just north of the city of Detroit. Drive along Van Dyke and you pass the sprawling auto plants of Ford and Chrysler. Obama carried Macomb County in 2008 and 2012, but Trump took it in 2016. Last week, Congressman Paul Mitchell, who represents part of Macomb County, announced he will be retiring. His district, which also includes rural areas north of the county, is strongly Republican. Trump won here by 30 points. But just because his seat was safe didn't mean Mitchell was happy to remain in it.
0: It appears to me that rhetoric overwhelms policy. And politics consumes much of the oxygen in this city.
1: Prior to his retirement, Congressman Mitchell had publicly criticized President Trump's tweet telling four Democratic congresswomen to, quote, go back where they came from. So I asked Congressman Mitchell if that tweet had anything to do with his retirement.
0: At first, I considered it for a while. I wasn't happy with the tweet because I felt it, uh, it's, uh, it was something said that's below, below effective leadership. And I expressed that fairly clearly. I expressed that to people in the White House I happened to be on CNN to do a uh, uh, media thing with Anderson Cooper, uh, and minutes before I was going on, the chance started to send them back. And then that Thursday night, we flew down the border. We did a tour the whole day of a variety of sites and talked to an awful lot of people that are coming across the border. Talked with a border agent, uh, it's number two in charge of that, that district, that region. Uh, who's, who's well past when he could retire, he's a year and a half from mandatory retirement, we asked him what he needed, and the last thing he said was, You're members of Congress, please fix this. So then uh, Chuck Schumer was doing a Codell at, at the same time, same location, so it's kind of, we overlapped. He finishes up his visit, and he goes out and does a press conference where he talks about conditions that are inhumane and deplorable and blames on the administration. Well, first, it wasn't inhumane and deplorable. It's not a garden spot. It's tragic conditions. It's, it talks some of the refugees, This huge problems. But instead of talking about his commitment to solve the problem, he looked for someone to blame it on. If we can't rise in leadership to a better level than that, we are kidding ourselves. So you put that week together, and I ask myself, why am I literally, and I mean it seriously, sacrificing time with my 9-year-old that I promised I'd be a dad. We adopted him from Russia seven and a half years ago, and I promised I'd be home and be a dad for him. Why am I trading off valuable time doing that to listen to that kind of lack of uh, of concern on major issues, uh, I, I couldn't spend six eight six eight year more years hoping that somehow uh, we would, as a body, as a group, decide we wanted to get a better America. I certainly hope for one. I will urge people to do that. I will vote for one, but I, I can't sit in D.C. and wrangle every 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 week hoping that as a collectively we we decide to solve a problem rather than talk about it and get elected on one.
1: So we're sitting here in the infamous Macomb County, Michigan, known as the, the Bellwether County. Macomb
0: County is a great place.
1: I know. This is a, a county that it seems seems to go with where the direction of the country nationally is, sure. is is centered here. So talk to us a little bit about what people here think of the president, what they think of the politics right now in Washington,
0: the president has a great deal of support still in Macomb County. I think he has a great deal of support still in the, in the 10th Congressional District. Uh, there are more jobs. The unemployment rate is down. It's up a little bit right now in Michigan because the number of people in labor force has gone up. Uh, unemployment rates are down. People are making money. Wages are going up. There's been more jobs created in Michigan in this district uh, since the president came to office in a very long time.
1: So talk about health care and specifically what your constituents here are talking about. When they hear the term health care, what does that mean for them?
0: Well, I think it revolves around the cost of healthcare. It's a terrible situation to be in as a consumer, or as a as a user of healthcare. Uh, the way our system is structured is is poor for that. Uh, anybody, however, that believes that the federal government will, will run your healthcare and it will get better, I will point to the VA as being an amazing example. And I'm not sure that that, that logic follows. I think those are things that that impact people here.
1: And what about the issue of immigration? Is this a big concern up here, and if so, in what context?
0: Wow, this, uh, <laughs> that's a complex question out here. Um, there's a segment of the population that just hopes to ignore it it'll go away because they don't know what to do with it. There's a segment of the population that's impacted by it because of the uh, where they, their status in, in, in immigration. Uh, they're legally here, but they don't have their citizenship yet. They, they have people trying to get uh, legal status here, waiting. Meanwhile, people are crossing the border. I think last month we detained 110,000 people at the southern border. And I say detained loosely because most of them turn themselves in. I wish I, we had video or more of, of the southern border. There are places they cross the river that are common crossings, that they put up signs in, in Spanish with an arrow to tell people as they cross, go down the road here, there's a border protection, border station here, a border, they put a tent, water refreshments, they get someone to come pick them up so they don't wander around the brush and die. Um, I talked to a young woman at the border who, uh, 17 years old, she just come, come in, she came up alone from Honduras. Uh, she was pregnant. And she said to me, she said, I I said, you know, are you doing okay? And um, she said she was glad to be there, despite the fact it was detention. Why? Because, you know, it's because at least in the interim, they're in a better place than what it took to get there or where they came from. And why did she come? Well, she saw a neighbor shot right off her by gangs, no real economic opportunity and the government was corrupt. She said, I'll, I'll do anything, to get out of here. Parents pay money to send their kids up through that trek unaccompanied. We're talking younger kids, we're talking 10, 12, 14 year olds, that's the level of desperation. And we have as a nation failed to address our immigration system and left, uh, left that system in a place that it, it encourages that rather than allow them to apply for asylum in their home country, provide the resources we provide here, put it in those countries. We could put facilities there to hold people while they're going through that process. There's a variety of things we could do to make our immigration system make sense uh, that we haven't done. Excuse excuse my wording at this, we're still still screwing around with it because we use it for a political talking point. Um, But that's why we're elected and we need to be committed to do that, even if it's uh, not a pleasant outcome. current situation is not that really pleasant. We just, we just try not to, we don't have to face it every day.
1: Congressman Paul Mitchell represents Michigan's 10th congressional district. I also checked in with a Republican who's been running campaigns in the state for years. Jamie Rowe got his start working for Republican Governor John Engler. Engler served for three terms as governor in the 1990s. Rowe spent a big chunk of his career with Republican Congresswoman Candace Miller, Paul Mitchell's predecessor in the 10th District. We sat down with Roe in his kitchen in Macomb County and asked him what he thinks of the 2020 fight for the state.
3: Our economy is back in a big way. You you, you drive up and down Hall Road, Van Dyke, Mound Road. Show me a vacant storefront. Show me a, manu- uh, a manufacturing facility that's not occupied with a help-wanted sign out front. Cause you're not going to be able to find it. If you find it, give me the address because I will be shocked. The economy here is doing great. And president Trump has kept his word on trade. He's gotten the, the, the Canada uh, Mexico deal done. Uh, now it's up to Nancy Pelosi to pass it. Take a vote. Just take a vote, bring it up and take the vote. There's no reason to not take the vote. So bring it up. You want to vote? No vote. No, but uh, take the darn vote people here, you have a lot of blue collar workers who are terribly negatively impacted by illegal immigration because it drives down wages. And I think you also have here a county that, that's built with people who were immigrants from you know, Eastern European, from, from communist countries, from Poland, from um, uh, Albania, from uh, Italy, from, not Italy's not a communist nation, but from Italy, from other places like that who waited in line and came here legally and they don't like to see people violating the rules. You know, you want to be an American, come here and be an American, but follow our rules to get here. And they get tough on the border message sold very well here. And I think it still does. I mean, if you take a poll, it's the number one issue. Security in in this poll- County,
1: it would be the number one right. issue.
3: It's been, It's the its the number one issue. We did um, polling for um, Congressman Mitchell and, it showed the border is the number one issue. Healthcare was number two. Healthcare was number two, but the border was, securing the border was still the number one issue.
1: Yeah. So let's go to two districts that you know well outside of Macomb. Go to those suburban districts yep. that Democrats flipped. Do you think that there's a capacity then for Trump to win those districts back again and Republicans to win those back?
3: I think there's absolutely possible that the president's going to win them back, whether we win defeat the current members of congress there is a different story we need candidates and right now we we don't have um i don't think we have the candidate in in either eight or 11 at this point um that can do it one great thing about in different difference this year is i know that first of all in order to count to 270 president trump has to compete in michigan He cannot. He cannot do what Mitt Romney and John McCain did to us and parachute out of here. Mitt Romney in 2012, allegedly the Michigan guy, uh, didn't set foot in Michigan after the convention, not one single time. In 2008, John McCain not only abandoned Michigan, he announced he was abandoning Michigan, which is the the just killed us and. President Trump will never do that. He, he cannot do that. If he, he wants to win, he has to play and compete in Michigan. So
1: when you see polling that's out now in the state that, uh, both Sanders and Biden, uh, are up over Trump by like eight points or nine points. What do you say?
3: Um, I think polls at this point in a campaign are meaningless, quite honestly. Um, and, you know, some of them that I've seen media poll, I mean, just Michigan media, yeah. Michigan based media polling done by the same pollsters who told me, you know, three weeks out from the election that Donald Trump was going to lose by 12 points in Michigan. So I, I take it with a grain of salt. I mean, if it didn't mean anything three weeks out from the election, it means even less right now. Um, pre- I know this the president's putting together a great campaign, He's filling his war chest to get ready for it. And he's got the the best rnc chair one of the best rnc chairs we've ever had in ronna mcdaniel who knows the state as well as anybody ronna was our state chairwoman in in 2016 and ronna never backed down in that campaign when everybody including her uncle were uh trying to force her into it man ronna never backed down that 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 lady's got a spine of steel and uh Uh, knows the state as well as anybody so that another reason why i know that they will never give up yeah so what's your
1: advice to those of us looking at polling in place like michigan now do you feel like there were lessons learned from 2016 and that they're able to pick up the don't don't believe the
3: pollsters all the time man I, i i will tell you this number one know that there's a hidden trump vote in every poll where people are afraid to express so it.
1: So with the Democrats that we've talked to since we've been here acknowledge that they took the state for granted and they're not making that mistake again. So is what that. you're seeing that the, you expect to see a more robust turnout then from Democrats?
3: Yeah, I don't think I, I think everybody know you know. <laughs> If you have uh, the model that the, the, you have total war, right, World War Two type of thing, I think that we have that coming for 2020, I think, and it's going to be on both sides. So the Republican base is the same way about President Trump, and it's one of the things that hurt us in, in 2018 as well. Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot, and there's a lot of people out there that – that in in also a lot of the people who support President Trump, I think were disappointed in some Republicans that they didn't support him, President Trump strong enough, and that's a real – test for our candidates now particularly if a candidate's running in a primary you better say that you support president trump and uh not be afraid to 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 have his back um i think our party is uh is ready for that fight as well and we've had ronald was in here this week with our our great state chairman laura cox and they were they've been doing uh training of our volunteers all over the state right now and the advantage that we have is Rory are focused on general election i mean it, it, when we're training volunteers we know who our candidate is and we're getting ready and we're getting trained up and we're hitting doors and doing all the things that you got to do right now all for donald trump not for some candidate to be named later
1: jamie Rowe, thank you so much
3: thank you welcome to macomb county thank hope you, hope you for letting it. us
1: we have loved it and thank you for letting us hang out in your kitchen yeah <laughs> It's nice, isn't it? It is. Even clean. (laughs) Before we close the show, I wanted to give my take on the Democratic debates that happened earlier this week. Lots of Democratic activists and insiders weren't happy with what they saw on Tuesday and Wednesday night. They were frustrated and disheartened, watching Democratic candidates bash each other instead of focusing their fire on President Trump. It looked like the political equivalent of a family therapy session. Well, I hear these complaints every election. The party out of power worries that competitive and contentious primary debates leave their voters divided and the ultimate nominee bruised and battered. But debates don't win or lose elections. Candidates do. If a candidate doesn't have a message that resonates with swing voters and also brings his or her party along for the ride, even a great debate performance won't win the election. Here's something else to consider. While Democrats spent much of the debate in fighting, and current frontrunner Joe Biden had a less-than-stellar performance, they are getting some help from an unlikely source, the president. A more disciplined candidate would use the bully pulpit to keep the focus on where he's strongest, the economy. Instead, President Trump continues to use his bully pulpit to, well, bully. With every divisive tweet, every attack on the squad or rat-infested cities, every send-her-back rally chant, Trump helps Democrats do the work for them. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook and leave us a comment there. Also, call us anytime at 877 8 Take, or send us a tweet, I'm at Amy E. Walter and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Michigan, for welcoming us. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.